Welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and a former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to improve financial results in our beer business. Now I'm helping other craft breweries to do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast. My name is Kerry Shumway and I'll be your host. Today I'm joined by Rocky Fiore from Prairie Capital Advisors. As Managing Director, Rocky oversees client engagements related to employee stock ownership plans, feasibility and structuring, valuation, and mergers and acquisitions. In the podcast, Rocky and I dig into ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans. And craft breweries are all about collaboration, camaraderie, employee empowerment. So an ESOP may be a natural evolution in craft beer culture. We also talk about the top reasons why a craft brewery might consider an ESOP, including the ability to maintain craft beer culture, maintain independence, create options for partial liquidation, and attract and retain the best talent. Rocky also gives us an update on mergers and acquisition transactions within the craft beer space. So for now, please enjoy my conversation with Rocky Fury from Prairie Capital Advisors. Hey, Rocky, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Care, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So to start out, uh, give us some background on your firm, Prairie Capital Advisors, and tell us about the services you guys provide and the types of clients that you serve. Great. And uh, thanks, Carrie, for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit uh, about our firm, our practice, uh, ESOPs in general, and whatever other conversational topics you want to take on. Um, so yeah, Prairie Capital was founded in 1996, so we'll be celebrating uh, 25 years in business uh, next April. Um, we're uh, roughly 50 employees with uh, seven offices uh, serving a national client base. Uh, our, our typical client is a privately held family-owned business. You know, I'd say on the low end, we're probably working with companies that may be in the uh, 5 million to 10 million revenue range, all the way up to, you know, hundreds of millions. Uh, but our, our typical client, again, may be in that, uh, you know, five to 10 on a very low end. And I would say the majority are in that, you know, at the upper end in 75 to 100 million. That's kind of like our, our sweet spot. Um, from an a advisory standpoint, um, we, we focus on ownership transition solutions. So with that, we, uh, we're primarily providing M&A advisory, uh, traditional sell-side advisory representing a business and a sale to a third party. Uh, we're also um, providing ESOP advisory where we're on the transaction structuring and feasibility side and valuation side of a business owner uh, or owners that may be considering a sale to their employees through an ESOP. And then we provide a whole lot of valuations, uh, doing over 400 uh, business valuations a year, big part of our business. You know, valuation is always the starting point of any ownership transition. Uh, The idea that, you know, when you're transacting or changing um, uh, shares between one owner and another, you've got to agree to a price. So 
you know, fundamental to that would be developing a valuation for the business. Great. Thank you for that. So let's, so you have, there's a lot of services obviously that you guys provide. Let's, let's zero in on, uh, on ESOPs, you know, maybe give us some basics, some background on, on what an ESOP is and what it stands for, I guess, would, if we go all the way back and then how a brewery owner might evaluate whether an ESOP would make sense for their business. Yeah. So ESOPs are an acronym for employee stock ownership plan. Uh, Here, a lot of people refer to them as employee stock option plans, which is different. So a stock option plan is in a non-qualified world uh, where an employee stock ownership plan is a qualified retirement plan. It's governed under ERISA and the Department of Labor. And its primary purpose is to provide uh, uh, equity ownership to eligible employees, participants in the ESOP. And they're company-sponsored plans. So the company decides whether or not it wants to put an ESOP in place. And the employees uh, that are eligible and participating in the ESOP, they essentially become owners in the company, uh, but they don't actually put any of their own money in typically. Uh, There are certain occasions, more unique transaction structures where they may, uh, as an example, roll over IRA or 401k money. Uh, to purchase stock with an ESOP directly, but that's more of a complex situation. By and large, um, the vast majority of ESOPs don't require employees to put a single dollar into um, the, their their ownership. And uh, and I would also say I think one of the nice benefits for ESOPs from a from an employer standpoint or from an owner standpoint is the fact that uh, there's a lot of flexibility in terms of what that ownership looks like. Uh, from a minority, you know, maybe a 20, 30, 40% uh, transaction all the way up to a majority transaction, something greater than 50, even 100% uh, transaction. So uh, they, they work really well for business owners, obviously, that are looking for some type of change in ownership and a transition of ownership. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a transition of their role within the company, which I think is an important distinction and advising uh, businesses and owners on uh, considering an ESOP that really you have the ownership and you have the operations of the business. And those are two separate and distinct uh, considerations. And so somebody uh, can have the idea of transitioning ownership, but feel like they have no interest in leaving their current role uh, in the business. So if they're a president, CEO, you know, strategic advisor, and they want to continue in that capacity, uh, they can do a minority ESOP or a control or 100% ESOP and still maintain that very same role, which is, uh, you know, one of the primary reasons why I think uh, business owners uh, choose ESOPs over other types of transactions. It gives them a lot of flexibility personally uh, in in what they're able to do um, going forward from a from an operational point point of view. And then obviously, you know, I think many people who understand even a little bit about ESOPs is just the great opportunity to reward employees to keep the company independent. So if you're, you know, and this is why I think it's it's been so um, such an interesting thing amongst uh, the craft beer world is if, you know, there's such a great deal of passion in the brand. Uh, there, there's so much uh, culture that goes into producing beer and, and building that brand that uh, the idea of selling to a third party, um, not, not to begrudge anybody that chooses to do that, that certainly is an option for anybody, 
but somebody that would say, you know, is there an option to, to, to transition ownership and keep the company independent uh, usually is a very intriguing, um, you know, strategy for somebody wanting to uh, consider a, ch- a change in ownership. We had talked um, a couple years ago about ESOPs because, you know, I'm just very interested in the concept. I think it really lines up well, you know, with, I think, philosophically, the, you know, craft brewery owners in particular and the folks that are working there. You had given me or your firm had put together a, a top five reasons why crafts were turned into ESOPs. And I'd like to I'd like to read that list and then maybe ask you um, which of these might be the primary reasons that you see folks coming and asking about ESOPs. So, and this is specific to uh, craft breweries, but the, f- the first one was maintaining the craft beer culture. Next was maintaining independence, as you said, the ability to sell without selling out, kind of interesting wording. Uh, third was it would create options for partial liquidation. Fourth, and this was at the time, was to be able to take advantage of a strong market. And then fifth was to attract and retain the best talent. Do you find, I guess a two-part question, is that list still relevant? And if so, uh, what are the primary reasons that you see people sort of exploring any South? I, I think generally speaking, and, and look, for every business owner, how they prioritize any one of those uh, considerations, uh, you know, maybe a matter of timing, it may be a matter of their own psychology of what they see as most important to them. But I would say, uh, by and large, most ESAP companies go to ESAP route because they want to remain independent. Um, they don't like the idea of selling to a third party. Uh, they believe what they have and the, their effort, the contributions of their employees, they, they feel a general sense of wanting to give back to a, a, wanting to allow those employees to benefit, giving them an opportunity to create a very meaningful and substantial retirement nest egg is uh, something that we hear often. Um, you know, obviously within in craft beer, I, I think it's even more so the case uh, just because of how passionate uh, each of the employees are, you know, in terms of getting behind the brand and uh, feeling like, you know, every ounce of brew that's produced is a product of the, that culture, those people, their hard work, uh, the attitudes they bring in every single day, you know, and just trying to preserve that any way possible. Uh, and, and, I, and I think is one of the reasons why ESOPs just, uh, you know, really, really fit well um, with, with, with the industry. So let's talk about the details. I would agree with that, and, I, and I'm wondering if that brings folks in the door. ESOP, I love, I love the way that it sounds. Employee ownership, maintaining independence, uh, and so on. But then, of course, the devil's always in the details, right? Yep. So tell us about uh, a feasibility study. Is this still the first step to really kind of dig in and, and determine the details of whether an ESOP makes sense, and, and if so? Maybe give us some background on what what that feasibility study looks like. Yep. So um, exactly. So it does come down to details. You're right. And uh, and and it, ESOPs are not great fits for every company out there. So there are some unique characteristics even within the brewery world um, that that I think would would allow a business owner to consider an ESOP. 
um, versus ones that may want to steer away. And I'll just highlight a, a few of those as an example. So I think companies that have less than maybe 15 to 20 total employees, like full-time employees, uh, they, they're likely not going to be good candidates for an ESOP just because of the size uh, standpoint. The company just may be too small. It may be too early stage. Um, there are ways to get an ESOP into a business like that, but it's likely not going result, to result in the business owner getting any form of liquidity. It'll be more of a uh, what we describe as a um, non-contributory or just a contributory ESOP where you're literally contributing, contributing new shares from corporate treasury and diluting the owner. So it's not a, so much a transaction where the shareholder is selling stock to the ESOP. It's more of just they're contributing new shares just to provide ownership to employees, but it doesn't create liquidity. Um, so it's not a very traditional form transaction. The more traditional form is an owner's actually selling stock uh, to the employees or owners are. Um, so there, there's the size element is one consideration. Two, a company that is, uh, is in a high growth mode. So if there's significant strategic investments that have to occur, a second facility, uh, acquisitions of potential other breweries, um, that doesn't mean that an ESOP is not a good fit. It may be a matter of timing. It also may be a matter of what size ESOP transaction. But remember that ESOPs ultimately introduce unproductive debt to the company's balance sheet. The shares that are being acquired by the ESOP because the company is the sponsor for the ESOP, it essentially means the company is paying for those shares. And it does that usually with a bank loan. Um, and in doing so, you're introducing unproductive debt on the balance sheet, but it begins to uh, reduce the amount of borrowing capacity that the company may have to pursue other strategic investments. So again, this is part of the feasibility aspect of it. Um, if a company's in high growth mode and does have all those strategic initiatives it wants to pursue, it doesn't mean an ESOP won't work. It just may mean you have to work on the right structure, the size of the transaction, maybe even the timing for the transaction. Um, in the most ideal situations, you have larger scale brewers, ones that may have um, you know, at, at least five to $10,000 of product, barrels of production, uh, you know, you, you have 50 to 100 plus employees. Um, you've got a, a uh, you know, a management team that has some depth to it. Uh, you've got a track record where the company has a steady uh, cash, positive cash flow. It uh, doesn't mean there are any bumps in the road. It uh, doesn't mean that the company hasn't had one or two off years. That's normal for any business in any industry, but it's really just... Uh, avoiding situations where a company's historical uh, income is so unpredictable and uh, is so volatile that it may be a difficult situation for it to absorb a very large uh, amount of debt in order to facilitate a transaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly a lot of financial considerations there. So within that feasibility study, presumably um, the, the brewery would engage you know, someone like yourself, you'd come in, kind of run the numbers, maybe take us through if there's a hypothetical example of, you know, what, what might those first steps look like? Do you come in and look at those historical financials, find out what it is they're trying to accomplish relative to 
transfer of ownership or are there other maybe just a couple of key considerations and starting points there? Yeah, for sure, Carrie. So uh, we would do the starting point of any transaction is going to be that valuation. So we'll establish uh, a fair market value for the business. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a standard of value that doesn't have the deep discounts that you might see in a privately held setting. Uh, an ESOP discount is typically 5% uh, to fair market value. Um, and, and I would just say that, uh, you know, just for, for those out there that may be considering an ESOP, it's not the, you know, strategic uh, premium. You know, when we think back to the Goose Island and the Ballast Point days, um, it's not the you know one-off uh, ideal strategic buyer that you can translate or correlate to an ESOP transaction. More akin to a financial buyer, like a private equity buyer, they're more just making an ESOP um, brings no synergies uh, to the table, no market synergies, no cost synergies. So it really is just investing in the company on a standalone basis. So the company as it operates today would be how it would operate going forward. No change in management, no change in strategy. That's really incumbent upon the board, its governance structure, its management team to go ahead and execute on that. So the the cash flows of the business as they are today, it's again, it's, it's basically valued from a financial buyer's point of view. Um, we would create that value. You know, we typically work off of three to five year historical financial information. We'll project out, you know, five to 10 years forecasted revenue, uh, gross profit, you know, full operating expenses all the way down to cash flow. Um, and ultimately, you know, when you're looking at valuations, cash flow is king. So, uh, you know, more cash flow means more value. And, uh, you know, more diversification, larger scale, all those things are upward pointing arrows. Um, You know, optimal working capital management uh, is an important thing. Managing inventory, uh, managing just general working capital receivables, um, you know, line of credit to the extent that's utilized uh, throughout the year. Just the more efficient that is, the more efficient use of that capital, usually that translates to a to a higher valuation. Obviously, balance sheet strength, balance sheet liquidity. Uh, just think about it from a general investor's point of view, craft beer or otherwise. If you've got a strong balance sheet, if you've got good liquidity, that obviously gives you flexibility from an investor point of view to take advantage of strategic opportunities. And that's an attractive thing. And attractive things for investors usually mean higher valuations and uh, greater premiums. So those are just some of the uh, things to think about. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, once we once we create the valuation, then what we do from an ESOP feasibility standpoint is we now contemplate, and we'll have conversations with the owner, but we'll contemplate the type of ownership transition they're looking at: a thirty percent, a fifty percent, or a hundred percent transfer of ownership. Many times, we'll create scenarios including all of those, and. Uh, and we'll lay those out and we'll show exactly mechanically how that works. So we'll layer the cost of financing the transaction. So we'll, we'll run a, a, a forecast and a feasibility model that shows the existing standalone business. And now with the financing costs and the expenses related to the ESOP, so we can see if it cash flows and then how much breathing room there is in each year, because we have to also account for the potential that 
everything won't or may not go as planned. So we have to have a contingency plan. We have to make sure that there is enough room and comfort that if things do slow down, if there is a bump or two in the road, that it doesn't put the entire company at risk. That's the last thing we would want to do is jeopardize the the brewery because a transaction was put in and it was too aggressive. So we're very mindful of that. We want to be good stewards to the industry and we want to be good advisors to the company. And so we want to do a transaction that we think has a very high probability of success in the long run. And so we'll be very mindful of that as we're creating our analyses. In in this market, you know, we're recording this in November, 2020, uh, pandemic, second wave, third wave, whichever wave we're on, you know, the, the, uh, we're dealing with some challenges. So my, I guess my question for you is what are you seeing relative to ESOP activity these days and how are you guiding clients, you know, kind of relative to, you know, what's going on in the market right now? Yep. So uh, I would say the months of March, April, and May, uh, pretty much in the entire transactional world, whether it was ESOP, M&A or otherwise, I think everything was on a standstill uh, there was a great deal of unpredictability about where things were at and where they were going to be going. Um, you know, banks who so much drive transactional activity, I think, were really uh, focused on uh, serving their clients, PPP loans, and uh, just being supportive of their situations. And I think there was a period of portfolio management where they were really trying to stay close to their clients who weren't necessarily going out trying to find. Uh, new credit. So I think a lot of the aggressive lending um, that we had seen for many years uh, had really uh, taken a step back. Um, things had gotten a lot better in July, August, September, even October now. So uh, even in the ESOP world, we've seen an incredible amount of activity uh, as we're moving toward the end of the year. Uh, many um, transactions have come back online, uh, the pipeline for new opportunities. So I think uh, from an ESOP point of view, uh, the market is very healthy. Um, there, there's been a host of uh, local, state, regional organizations, the Employee owners Ownership Exchange, uh, the NCEO, the ESOP Association, all of them have really uh, put the pedal down in terms of trying to get ESOPs out to market and create opportunity for business owners to become aware of ESOPs before they pull the trigger on another type of transaction. And again, it's not with the mindset of we want everybody to uh, do an ESOP, but more as we want business owners to know what their options are and to be able to consider an ESOP. I mean, the unfortunate thing of, and I've heard this story many times, and it's really disappointing because you just feel like as a professional as an advocate within the industry that perhaps you didn't do quite enough or didn't do a good enough job getting the message out. But somebody that, you know, may have said, boy, if I had known about ESOPs before I did my transaction, I I would have likely considered that I might've gone down that route. But uh, for whatever reason, you know, somebody within their inner circle, uh, either their friendship group, their, you know, their club friends, their, their, um, you know, their, their lawyer, their accountant, whoever it may be, may just not have been familiar with ESOPs. It might not have been a transaction they were comfortable presenting. And so it never got discussed. And uh, so they just went with the more traditional form M&A. And that might have been the case anyway. And again, we, we do M&A transactions. So, uh, you know, we're fully supportive of anybody that chooses to sell to a third party. You have that option as an owner. But uh, what we really try and do is focus more on the education 
and making sure that there's complete understanding and transparency of to what different options are, how they work, um, and, and then allowing them to make an informed decision. It's, it's a big part of our business and how we go about, you know, work, working with business owners. There's, there's a lot of, uh, aspects of the ESOP to consider. If, if someone's interested in this, how do you suggest that they learn more? Is there anything you recommend relative to further reading? Is there like an, uh, you know, frequently asked questions list? How could, how could someone prepare, um, and kind of gather the things to think about uh, as they approach, you know, maybe taking the next step on, on investigating an ESOP. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Carrie. And 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 I did want to add one more item of consideration because one thing that we haven't mentioned in in the feel good stories about ESOPs and the cultural aspect and the independence aspect and rewarding employees aspect, which is it are all huge things. But there are significant tax considerations in ESOPs, tax considerations that the company enjoys. Um, all all uh, contributions to the ESOP, so the entire transaction purchase price is essentially tax deductible to the company. So that's a very attractive feature. Um, and then the other thing is, from a seller's point of view, there may or may not be they may they may not choose to, but they have an option to defer. Uh, their capital gains um, taxes on the on their sale, so their their transaction proceeds may be, um, you know, from a gross standpoint relative to taxes versus at, at, in an M and A sale, you know, you're going to pay taxes in the years you receive the money. So, uh, you know, again, just with the idea that um, you know, ESOPs provide considerable uh, tax benefits to the company and to um, and, and and to uh, selling shareholders. And then uh, as far as um, folks getting information, you know, you can go to the internet, Google ESOPs and get a lot of uh, different things that pop up on a, on a search engine. But I would say, uh, you know, three primary uh, sources would be the ESOPassociation.org. Um, great content on that website. Uh, you can see which conferences are available. You can attend uh, conferences to learn more, sit in on sessions and things of that nature. Uh, but there's, there's a good amount of content there. Um, same thing with the National Center of Employee Ownership. That's the nceo.org. Uh, plenty of information on their w- website as well. They do a great job. And then um, our website, uh, www.prairiecap.com. And, and uh, we have a content-rich website. Uh, we run 12 to 15-plus webinars uh, throughout the year. A lot of those are archived. Um, so there's years of webinars. And if they're not on there, uh, they can contact me uh, directly and I can provide them with some of that information. But we have white papers, articles, uh, webinars, and other things ranging from the very beginning of an ESOP to just valuations, you know, the feasibility and structuring side of it to the quarterbacking to a transaction close. Uh, and even other sustainability things with respect to existing ESOP companies, if they want to learn how to be a more efficient ESOP once they're already there. So we try and be very forward-looking thought leaders in the industry and, and really encompassing the entire ESOP life cycle. So we're there from the concept uh, inception all the way through you know, the end, end of time for which they're going to be an ESOP. Some go on and on and on. I've known ESOP companies uh, that have been, you know, pushing 40 plus years as an ESOP. Uh, they originally came out in the 1970s, 
uh, and other ones that, you know, we've uh, brought to be an ESOP within the last 12 months, many of them. So, uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, obviously they're all experiencing something a little bit different um, and they're living, breathing things. You know, you don't put something in place once and leave it alone forever. You're always having to kind of reconsider, you know, is what we're doing actually working for us as intended, or we need to make some changes. And it's like an automobile, you do your diagnostic check and you see what might need to be changed. And we may go in and make some recommendations. Great. Yeah. Thank you for those resources. Cause yeah, you can Google anything and Lord knows what comes up. (laughs) It's good to have some credible resources to start with. So let's pivot a bit here. I just want to talk about valuation specifically you had mentioned that as a key component of you know doing the feasibility study for the ESOPs so uh, one one item I picked up on your website that says we'll not only tell you the value of your business what but what drives value so I was interested to to dig into that in your view what are the primary drivers of value in a brewery business yeah so again uh, you know I mentioned a, a few of these but definitely you know, from a, a, a profitability standpoint, um, you know, companies that have higher levels of profitability, more sustained levels of profit, profitability, less volatility in their earnings, uh, more predictability, all that usually means a valuation premium. And, uh, and you'll get, you know, more value out of the company for companies that are experiencing, you know, that level of consistency versus others that may be, you know, one good year, one bad year, a couple good years, a couple bad years. I think those are going to be valuation discount type situations. Um, you know, brand uh, in the marketplace. So, you know, companies that obviously, and usually that's that's seen through its sales. And uh, so companies that have, you know, a growing revenue and, uh, you know, they have a sticky customer base and uh, loyalty um, that, you know, usually shows up in a P&L through, through its, its revenue stream. Um, obviously right now, you know, and you mentioned earlier, there, there is the challenge of, um, you know, brew pubs and, uh, you know, restaurants and other on-premise type sales that have, you know, for many people have either evaporated entirely or is, you know, working at a very small fraction of its former self. And, um, and, you know, I don't want to say that's okay because that's real and people are feeling that and that's a real tough situation. And they're, you know, you know, folks are battling every day trying to get to the other side of this. And, um, but, you know, the reality is from a valuation standpoint, you, you do recognize, you can't explain that period. Uh, you know, it, it's more of just in a normal circumstance, what that might look like that might tell a different story, but we're, we're certainly sensitive when we're looking at a business and evaluation, um, understanding that, you know, from, from the on-premise sales, but, you know, most of what we've seen is they're picking up some of that, but not all of it in the off-premise sales. So they're able to get some of that in retail, you know, grocery stores and liquor stores and things of that nature. But, um, you know, that's just becoming an ever more, you know, I'm, I'm in a Chicago market, it's just becoming an ever more competitive landscape. And so, you know, you know, you got to look at where you're positioned, um, you know, relative to other beers, you know, you know, are you center aisle and top or lower shelf and in a refrigerated section? And so there's all the, you know, premium areas or, or not. But I, again, the truth is in the numbers. So when you look at those revenue trends, that usually should help to support whatever narrative is behind it. Um, you know, management teams, 
really you know are worth their weight in gold in times like this. So if you've got a very experienced management team that works well together, um, you know from an operational point of view and from a strategic point of view in terms of just ownership working with management to try and execute on a strategy, the more experience that is there, the the more synergy that is within that group, the more they gel together. Again, I think that that's a value positive as opposed to, you know, you, you just brought in a new CEO or a president or a new brewmaster in the last year or two, not really been tested in a market like this. I think that that could present significant risks um, that, uh, you know, may not be there. You know, what we do know about any industry in situations like this is a strong usually survive. It doesn't mean they're not getting beat up, but they usually come out the other end in a better situation relative to their competition. And I would expect that to be the case um, in a situation like this as well. So again, really focusing on uh, operational controls, cost reduction, um, inventory management, you know, just doing very smart things and, uh, uh, you know, taking the opportunity to control the things that you can control. It's very hard to control what the market is giving you. Um, there are some strategic things you can do to reposition, but those can take time. They can cost money and there can be risk uh, with respect to execution. But being mindful of those things that you can take ownership of and take control of, again, typically helps to provide a lot of value. And I think those things over time just create more discipline uh, and, and, and give you an opportunity when things do get better to see higher valuations um, in the future. And Carrie, I know this, uh, Carrie, I know you know this, uh, you know, all too well, but financial management and controls is a big thing. You know, just having your financial house in very good standing, uh, having information that's consistent, understandable, readily available, um, timely, all those things uh, help to, uh, you know, really show the company well um, whenever there's that moment of an ownership transition helps to instill confidence, uh, helps to answer questions where their questions may be, you know, there's nothing worse than, um, you know, having interested parties involved in a transaction where one party begins to lose confidence because questions aren't getting answered satisfactorily, satisfactory. Um, they're not, they're not getting answered on a timely basis. They're not getting answered thoroughly. Uh, there's a host of things that can begin to erode the confidence that any one party may have. And so, uh, you know, again, having that financial management and control in place, uh, whether it's now at the point of the transaction at any point in the future, always gives you a better opportunity uh, to present the business and extract a higher valuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. You got you to be confident in the numbers. Otherwise, you know, what can you believe in? And I, you know, those are good points about consistency, predictability. You know, we want to see these these things historically. You know, profit, cash flow is kind of your your basic metrics. But yeah, I think I think wrapping it all up with having good control over the numbers, good data control. Uh, so to the extent that you can present that information, have all the numbers really hold together, it does demonstrate you know you know what you're doing and you've got those good controls in place. I did want to uh, ask you on. You know, in addition to ESOP transactions, uh, you had mentioned you guys do traditional M&A, traditional mergers and acquisitions activity. I'm curious what you're seeing in the craft brewery space these days. 
you know, given given the market conditions or and, and what's going on. So, what do you what are you seeing out there for that? Yeah. So, um, in general, M and A transactions are probably at half their normal volume. They were significantly even less than that, uh, maybe half of that half, so a quarter of normal volumes um, through the summer, and uh, you know, picking up to be about half of what they were pre-pandemic. Um, we're seeing from a craft beer standpoint, there's about one a month, roughly through the pandemic. Um, you know, some of these I'm not entirely familiar with. It's hard to know exactly what the motivations are. Some of those are forced transactions where, you know, the brewery may, may have, you know, overbought capacity. They, they just may be in a tough situation and may have to, um, you know, transition or find a financial buyer or strategic partner. Um, others may just be opportunistic, you know, the, uh, you know, some of the larger craft beers and, uh, spirits companies wanting to take advantage of, you know, this opportunity to acquire, you know, a good, uh, local or regional craft beer that has some capacity and some know-how and be able to leverage that. So, um, you know, we, we've definitely, you know, seen a drop in volume, even in a craft beer space, it looks to be about a half to a quarter of what it was a year ago. Uh, and that may likely continue on here. There's just not a great environment uh, for non-distressed transactions. If you talk distressed, maybe that's going to pick up significantly. But I'm talking about more the choice to, uh, you know, to sell. And, uh, and I, I think that, you know, the challenge is, as we discussed, you know, if you have on-premise sales, that's not a good situation. You've maybe sold a little more off-premise, but you've maybe not have picked up all the volume there. And so it's not an ideal time to go sell. The business may not present in its best way. You're going to have to account for and explain away, which, you know, everybody will know, but it doesn't mean they'll want to pay for that story. And that's where the challenge is. The other thing is diligencing a business these days. You know, what's important about making acquisition and one of the greatest reasons why acquisitions fail is cultural aspects. It's not so much the product you were buying or the company you were buying was a poor fit. It was more, there was a cultural issue. Management teams didn't align. Employees didn't generally align with the new culture. So whatever motivations they had, whatever style they had about working changed. And then that, you know, ultimately resulted in a transaction failing or the owner not being able to extract all the value. And so meeting your acquired company is an important aspect to completing a transaction. And we know in this world of pandemic, it's just hard to do on-site, face-to-face interviews, to do plant tours, to spend enough time in a room uh, working on a transaction, talking about it, negotiating it, going through the process of getting comfortable with everything about it is just uh, something we've seen uh, you know, as a significant headwind, and that that's not going to go away anytime soon. So my 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 belief is it's just not going to pick up. Transaction volume won't pick up. I think it'll definitely pick up maybe mid to end of next year, and then we'll see that continue on thereafter. But I think its current state is probably at least another six months uh, before any meaningful change in volume. Again, that's for non-distressed situations. Gotcha. Well, Rocky, this has been great information. Really want to thank you for taking the time. I mean, a lot of good, a lot of good stuff here. ESOPs, valuations, M&A activity, uh, some really good starting points uh, and resources for folks to learn more. So if someone wants to get in touch with you, learn more about 
uh, your firm, the services you offer, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, sure. So again, our website has all of our contact, you know, has our company contact information. We have a Teams page there and you can uh, locate me there and I've got all my contact information, but I can give you my phone number uh, is 630-413-5575. And my email is R-F-I-O-R-E at prairiecap.com. Dot com. So rfiori at prairiecap.com. Excellent. Rocky, thanks again for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinancialtraining.com. And don't forget to sign up for the world-famous craft brewery financial training newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.